This is James Moore, pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri, praying this audio message will be a blessing to you. For more information or to donate, please visit newlifekc.com. Hey, happy uh, Fourth of July weekend. We Americans love the Fourth of July, don't we? I think it's our celebration of the Fourth of July that we love more than anything else, uh, particularly it's the fireworks, isn't it? We all have some affinity towards fireworks. I don't know what it is. I got online, I started reading this week, and in the year 2000, Americans spent $407 million on fireworks. Whoa. But that's nothing. Fast forward to 2019, and Americans spent $1 billion on fireworks. But hey, you know what? That couldn't be sustainable, right? Because COVID hit, 2020 happened, and you know, probably like supply chain demand issues, right? No, I don't know what it was, but in the year 2020, fireworks sales soared to $2 billion. And I'm hearing this year, my wife was like, you know, like fireworks are going to cost more this year. There's like 20% inflation on fireworks. I was like, what? I don't know what prices are going to go up to, but I do know this. Everyone loves fireworks, but there's something about the dudes in the room that particularly love blowing stuff up. I don't know what it is. I know you women, you're like, no, we like fireworks. Yes, you like. We love them. I don't know what it is, but there's something about it. And you know why I know this is true? Because it's the guys in the room who put fireworks inside of mailboxes. Girls don't do that. Uh, It's the guys in the room who take their G.I. Joes and strap firecrackers to them, light them on fire, watch them explode, and then go find the parts. That's what guys do. I'm pretty confident the other day my adult neighbor blew up a watermelon in my cul-de-sac. Nobody knew it, but I'm pretty sure it was him. It wasn't anybody else that would have been around. Uh, There's something about guys in this time of year. If you gave a guy the opportunity to douse something in fire, like douse it like with lighter fluid and then light it on fire, he would say, yes, why not? What do you want to light up? We love it. There's something about it. In fact, in uh, UCLA, there's a clinical professor, and he was always intrigued by why do boys, males, have this tendency to be drawn to fireworks. And here's what he said. He said, boys are often encouraged to suppress their nervous energy in social settings like school. And he goes on to suggest that explosions are a way of releasing this pent-up energy. He further states that fireworks can provide a release for anger and a place of feeling freedom from the desire to feel dependent upon people like mothers. (laughs) And so he says this, and I quote, that fireworks provide a temporary resolution of conflict. So, fellas, in the house, we haven't got to the Word of God yet, but tomorrow, my friends, is our therapy day. Go spend some money. Go let that little pyro in you out and blow something up. And I'm not judging you. I want you to tomorrow, like, paint the sky with color. Like, make it pretty. Like, go to sleep with a ringing in your ears. Enjoy the smell of gunpowder because I'm going to be right out there with you. And a couple years ago, my wife caught me teaching my boys how to do this, and so I have to show you a couple pictures. This is me and my oldest, Max. Um, 
I didn't know that I was so excited, uh, but definitely some excitement there. Um, I have another boy. Here's Miles. I had to make sure he didn't uh, get out of control, but look at that face. He's just enjoying it, loving it. And so I've got a third boy this year. We'll find out if we can teach him anything about those things. So it's Fourth of July weekend. It's a fun time. And um, I want to do this just real quickly. If you have served or are currently serving in our military, if you're a veteran or currently enlisted in the uh, military, would you just take a moment? Can we have you stand? And um, let's just give them a round of applause and appreciation. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And those who enlist in our military are people who have uh, been willing, if necessary, and called upon to lay their life down for those that um, would be considered their friends. And so, according to Jesus, there's no greater love than this. And so, uh, thank you for your love. Thank you for defending freedom, for defending uh, liberty, uh, defending life, and also preserving justice. And so this morning, as we get started, I've invited Billy Kirky, my good friend who is a veteran. He served in our Marine Corps. Um, and so he's going to come and he's going to share our scripture reading for the day with you. And so we're going to uh, read a little bit about this guy named Saul. Okay, Saul in the New Testament. So I want you to pay attention because we're going to come back to the story at the end. But uh, if Billy looks good and you're excited, um, Billy would almost rather rejoin in the military than do what he's about to do. He's not much of public speaking. So give him a little love. Give him a round of applause. He gets ready to share God's word with us. You got it. Acts 6.8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. After his arrest and trial, Acts 7, 57 through 58, they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts 9, 1 through 6, 19 through 21, and 26 through 28. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on, around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? When Saul arrived in, in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he, was truly, he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. 
he also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Saul. We're going to talk a little bit about Saul today, and I want you to remember this story because we're getting like the backstory on who Saul was. He was a guy who was persecuting Christians. He was uh, actually a part of being a, a contributor to the murder of Christians, and if anybody was wanting to be a part of the way, follow Jesus, he was doing everything in his power to stop them from following Jesus, and all of a sudden he himself has an encounter with Jesus. And all of a sudden, man, huge change. And not only has he changed, you know, if you were killing Christians and then Jesus showed up, what do you think Jesus might want to do to you? I'd be a little, I'd be a little nervous, right? But, but, but our God isn't one who's trying to, to kill people. Um, our God is one who's trying to reach people. And so he reached Saul, and all of a sudden we saw there immediately Saul began to preach. He began to tell others, you know, you got to follow Jesus now. Like complete 180. Uh, pretty crazy story. So we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Uh, but this morning, here's the message I want to share with you. It is titled, Identity and Allegiance. Um, I always like to joke that people who take notes have a better spot in heaven. So hey, in case that's true, you might want to take some notes this morning. So here's the thing, identity and allegiance. This is the title of today's message. And there's two questions that we're going to try to uh, dress today to tackle. When we talk about identity, we're asking the question, who am I? Like, who am I at the core? And, and with allegiance, we're asking this question really of whose side am I on? Who am I going to commit my allegiance to? Who am I going to pledge allegiance to? What side am I on? And so we're going to come back. Saul's going to be a part of us talking about identity and allegiance. But first, I want to talk about Marvel action movies. Some of you are like, oh no, I saw some of you, there's an automatic eye roll. So here's the deal, I spent a lot of my time with teenagers. Um, I've been a youth pastor for years, I'm a high school coach, so I always am asking teenagers questions. Uh, 20 years ago, I used to ask the question, hey, who's your favorite superhero? If you could be a superhero, what would you be? Or if you could have one superpower, what would it be? And that's a great question. You know, everybody has an answer. And in like 20 years ago, you had basic answers because there was like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. Those are your three primary options. Normally, if you ask the teenager 20 years ago, they're going to answer one of those three. But in the last 20 years, something crazy's happened. They've decided to start making lots of movies about superheroes. And so some of you know that there's two comic book companies. One is called DC Comics. And out of DC Comics comes Superman, you know, Man of Steel. Um, also comes Batman. Batman was my favorite as a kid. Anybody's favorite Batman growing up? Yeah, yeah, you gotta love Batman. Um, in fact, I went and bought all the old 1960s Adam West Batmans because they're appropriate. And I watch, my little boys watch them and they're like, is this Batman night? I'm like, Batman night's on Monday nights. It's Tuesday. Ah, oh, we missed it yesterday. I'm like, you did, boy. So Batman, we love Batman. Uh, Batman's great. Superman, they're all in DC World. Aquaman's over there. Wonder Woman. But there's Marvel, Marvel comics. I kept Wonder Woman in there, chill out. Um, on, the, uh, on the Marvel side, Marvel really came on the scene big because they started making these movies. And so over on Marvel side, what do you have? You got Iron Man, you got Thor, you've got the Incredible Hulk. Uh, 
the flash, the flash, uh, the flash over in DC. Yeah, yeah, got to keep him over there. On uh, Marvel side, you've got Black Widow, you've got Hawkeye, you got Ant Man. Like we got like a lot. There's a whole lot. And some of you are like, I did not know that Ant Man was a superhero. Yeah, he's an Avenger. Come on. So uh, get with it. Disney Plus, you can watch all of them. Um, so so now my question, instead of asking Tanner, hey, who's your favorite superhero? I now ask because most kids like Marvel better than DC. I ask them. I say, hey, who's your favorite Marvel superhero? And about like six, seven years ago, almost everybody would answer Iron Man. I am Iron Man. Iron Man is the coolest. Tony Stark, you're rich, you're a philanthropist, you have lots of money, you can invent anything, you look good, you have cars. Yeah, definitely Iron Man. But that generation is now like in their early 20s. And now as I ask teenagers this, I have been surprised to find that most young people today, when I say, who's your favorite Marvel superhero, who do you think they say? Captain America. I had no idea Captain America was such a big deal. And guess what? It's 4th of July weekend. And Captain America and 4th of July weekend go together just like this. And if you don't know who Captain America is, you better watch this video clip. Body armor, AR-15s. I make seven hostiles. I make five. Sam? Four. Rumlow's on the third floor. Wanda. Just like we practiced. What about the gas? Get it out. <laughs> All right, some of you are like, hey, can we finish watching that? No, we're in church, y'all. You gotta watch that on your own time. Captain America. Captain America is kids' favorite superhero today. And here's the thing about superhero uh, Captain America is that he wasn't always special. Some of you may know that his real name in the movie, of course, is Steve Rogers. And as a kid, he grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And he was scrawny. He was small. He was born in 1918. But all of a sudden, America's in war. And it's not against Hitler. It's against Hydra. Hydra is the enemy. And so he wants to enlist. He wants to be a part, but he's too small. He's too weak. He can't do it. But he has this best friend. He has this lifelong friend. His best friend, anybody remember his best friend's name? Bucky. Bucky Barnes is his best friend. And Bucky's just a regular dude who's patriotic. He's good. And he's Steve's friend. Even though Steve's small and people pick on him, he is still Steve's friend. He loves little Steve. When he goes on a date, he makes sure Steve's got a date. He always is taking care of Steve because Bucky is a good friend. But then all of a sudden there's this new super soldier serum <laughs> and they are going to figure out who they're going to give it to and the thing about the secret soldier serum is whatever you are in your heart whatever character is there it's going to be expressed greatly so they don't want to give it to somebody who's got a bad heart because it's going to make them even worse but if they have a good heart it's going to make them great and they think little steve steve's our winner steve's got a good heart steve's the guy he's the underdog he's going to do it and so they turn little steve into captain america and then bucky his best friend is like whoa 
you're bigger than me. Whoa, like you going on dates and I ain't going on dates. But they maintain their friendship. They maintained it and they actually end up in war together. They're fighting the enemy together. And tragically, Bucky dies. Or at least we think he dies, okay? He falls, and there's this great scene, and it's like, oh, no, Captain America's best friend's gone, and we all mourn. And then Captain America, crazy story, he ends up frozen in ice, and he's out of commission. (laughs) It's a Marvel world, okay? But while he's frozen, while he's predisposed, we have Bucky, and Bucky actually didn't die. (gasps) He was captured by Hydra, and Hydra began to torture him, and they took him, and they began to give him their own secret soldier serum that would make him a super soldier, except he would no longer have free will. This serum caused him to do whatever he was told to do. And so he had a memory of everything he was doing, but no control to stop it. He was involved in evil, but he didn't want to be, but he couldn't stop himself. And so Bucky becomes what's known as the Winter Soldier. And he does all of these evil, horrific things, assassinations, different things, in order to advance the cause of Hydra. But as luck would have it, Steve Rogers, Captain America, thaws out of the ice, and he comes back, and there's this scene in which him and the Winter Soldier are fighting, and all of a sudden, Captain America recognizes his best friend, lifelong friend. There he is, Bucky, but Bucky doesn't recognize him because he's under the control of Hydra. Of course, as the movie goes, we'll fast forward. They save Bucky. Captain America is able to get him, able to get him out of the control of the evil ones. And so now Bucky's like, hey, I've been set free from this past, but I can remember everything I did. And all of a sudden, Bucky is finding himself asking questions about his identity. When I was a kid, when I first joined the military, I was on the good guy side and I was doing what was good. I was fighting for justice and to preserve life. But then I did all of these horrific things and now I'm not doing those horrific things. But am I evil? Am I messed up? Am I able to ever be good again? And so he begins to question his own identity. And in fact, everybody around him begins to question his allegiance. Whose side are you on? Are you just playing us and acting as though you're good? And are you still evil? And so there's this question everybody has about who are you, Bucky, and what's your allegiance? And even in himself, he's asking these questions. And so I think that his, his struggles really came down to these three things. And we can put this little graphic up. Bucky Barnes was at odds with, number one, the world's perspective of him. He's been seen as this evil, bad person who has a very bad history. And so he's at odds with, with this world's perspective because is, is that who I am or is that not who I am? But then in number two, he's even a little conflicted about his own perspective of himself. Am I evil? Am I good? Have I changed? Am I able to do anything right now? Am I worth being a part of any team? And, and then think about his, his perspective of the world outside of him. Man, his perspective of the world changed a lot from being a kid when he first joined the military to protect things, but then he became the evil he was trying to stop in the world. And man, his perspective of the world would have changed. How he saw good, how he saw evil, what was called good wasn't always as good as it seemed, and what was evil maybe had glimmers of hope. And his perspective of the world, he was at odds with so many of these things, struggling to know what is my 
identity? And where is my allegiance? In fact, while he was serving as the winter soldier, he actually, without having control of his free will, assassinated Tony Stark, Iron Man's parents. Ooh. And so guess who has a real hard time trusting him? Iron Man. Because you did something horrible to my parents, and I don't know if I could ever forgive you. And although Bucky's saying that he has changed, there's still a question of where is your allegiance and who are you? Now, I bring up Bucky on this 4th of July weekend. We had to make a jump from Captain America to Bucky, but it was good. It was, you, you made the jump with me. I think that we as Christians find ourselves a lot in the same situation that Bucky is in. We find ourselves at odds as Christians with the world's perspective of us. You ever think about how the world sees you as a Christian? A few years ago, there was a book that came out called Unchristian, and it was put together by uh, the president of this uh, think tank kind of group that does a lot of polling and tries to find out where people are called, uh, um, well, I can't even remember what it's called right now off the top of my head. Uh, uh, not Gallup, uh, Search of the Bee. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's not Barnes & Noble. That's where you buy books, um, and they have books there. Uh, but it's something close to that. Um, so anyway, uh, he puts together all these polls, so they try to find out what people are thinking. And so in this book, they approached people who were not people of faith, and the question was, is how do you see people who profess to be Christians? Like, what words would you use to identify them? Like, what perspective do you have as an outsider to the people who put their faith in Jesus. And so in this book, there was a number of things that he went into, but the uh, top list here um, of how people saw us as Christians, um, number one was that we are anti-homosexual, that we are too political, that we are judgmental, that we are intolerant, and that we are sheltered, that we kind of live like in our own little snow globe. That was the world's perspective of us. This is how maybe your neighbors see you. They know you're a Christian, but they also think that you're anti-homosexual. They also think that you're probably too political, especially if they follow you on Facebook. Uh, they think that you're a little judgmental, that you're not listening to both sides of the story, uh, that you're intolerant, and there's only one way to see it, and you're always right. Um, so we're not going to have a conversation with you, and you're sheltered. You don't, you don't even see the full scope of what you believe. Um, we find, I think, like Bucky, that there is a place that we tend to be at odds with the world's perspective of us, because are we that? Are we those things sometimes? Are those just stereotypes? How do I... Man, I feel like I'm at odds with how the world even sees me. I don't know if that's accurate. But then we're all kind of at odds, number two, with our own perspective of us because we kind of have to sit back and ask, am I anti-homosexual? I mean, I know that Jesus called me to love everybody, but can I love people that I disagree with? Am I too political? I mean, I only post one thing a day on Facebook about my political beliefs. I only listen to AM radio one hour a day. I only have certain websites I peruse daily. Am I too judgmental? Am I intolerant? Am I sheltered? 
Like, I think I know what my pastor would believe about a certain topic, but, but like, where do I stand? I know where Christians might tend to stand, but what stance should I take? And so I think that we're kind of like Bucky. We're at odds with even our own perspective of us. Am I this Christian who loves Jesus and wants to help others know Jesus? Or am I some other version that is being painted by the world? I think that we're, we're living in a tension in how we see ourselves. And this tension that we have of how the outside world looks at us, how we are kind of trying to figure out who we are inside ourselves, it even overflows into this number third category, our perspective of the world, that we're kind of at odds with the world. And I can't tell you how many Christians I talk to who kind of believe, and they don't always say it outright. Every now and then they'll, they'll be honest enough to say that. But here's what they think about the world, that the world's evil, that the world's getting worse, that the world's morally bankrupt, that the next generation has no hope, and that it's kind of a lost cause. And so the best thing that we can do is retreat from the world and try to hang on to whatever we can, pull your kids out of school, better homeschool. We've got to save, get that extra storage unit so we have food because the end of the world's coming. It's all going down, and it's not good, so we better just protect us. And what happens is the world is bad, we are good, let's keep a separation. And so we're kind of at odds with all of these things, and we're struggling at the end of the day with our two words that we're coming back to today. We're struggling with identity, who am I, where do I belong, and then really whose side am I on when it comes to topics of today. Where do I land? Where is my allegiance? And so there's tension that we have. We're all a little bit like Bucky Barnes struggling with where we're at. And I think the tension's so real. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll dive into the tension. My dad wanted me to speak on Fourth of July weekend because he wanted me to talk about things that nobody wants to talk about from the pulpit. Uh, you may have heard um, in recent news that the Supreme Court of the United States uh, made, a, made a big decision. They decided to undo a ruling that took place in the 1970s that was called Roe v. Wade. Okay, so we have this thing that happened in the United States in the 70s. Um, the Supreme Court said that wasn't correct in what we did. We're going to try to make things correct. And I don't know if you've heard or not, there's some people who are unhappy about it. There's some people who are happy about it. Now, we find ourselves as Christ followers, Christians. How are we to respond to this? There's the way the world thinks Christians should respond, but we are Christians. How do we think that we should respond? And then how do we view the world when they take a different position than us? I've talked to more Christians who have said, I've chosen to not talk on the subject than to talk at all about it because it's too tension-filled. How do we navigate these waters? How do we keep our identity in Christ, and how do we determine where our allegiance lies? Maybe I can help. Can I completely exhaust this topic in a Sunday morning service? The answer is no. But let's see if I can be helpful. We as a church and as believers of the Bible 
believe that unborn babies are human lives. To separate and call a fetus just uh, human tissue um, and to not call it a human life, that is not a belief of us. Um, And we would not even argue that it's not just a Christian belief, that it's just kind of a common sense belief. Um, There are currently uh, laws in the world that if you find an endangered egg of an eagle or of a sea turtle, that you are not to destroy that egg because of the life that's within it. And just in the same way, we believe that when there's a uh, pregnancy, that there is life inside of that womb. And so we as a church believe that unborn babies are human lives. And so for people to choose to get rid of that human life would sadden us. And I think it would break uh, the heart of God because it's not It's not right for us to take human life. Now, let's further wade into the tension. How did Jesus teach us to go about changing our world? I can tell you what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't become the emperor of Rome in the first century. Jesus didn't try to use policy and try to adjust the law in order to move forward his moral agenda or his belief system. But it's interesting to me today that we have Christians who tend to believe that the way that we can change the world is through policy and law. But that is not the way that Jesus suggested or taught us to change the world. Jesus never tried to make any nation a Christian nation. And we have a lot of Christians who believe that America was once upon a time a Christian nation, but we've lost our way and we need to go back to being a Christian nation once again. Let me pop the bubble. We were never a Christian nation. You can read the Declaration of Independence and there is nothing explicitly Christian in it. You can read the Constitution. There is nothing explicitly Christian in it. You can read the Declaration, and you can come to the most precious phrase that we all have heard, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you can say, there it is. We have a Creator. We're Christian. It didn't say that that Creator was Jesus. It just said that there's a Creator. Our founding fathers, although some were Christians, many were what are called deists. Deists do not believe that Jesus was God. Deists believe in a higher power. They believe in a creator. But he kind of set the world into motion and has taken off. If God is supposed to be eminent and transcendent, he is not both of those in a deist world. He is not near us. He's transcendent, but he's not eminent. He's not close to us. He is not participating with us. And so we read people like Thomas Jefferson, who was a main contributor to our Declaration of Independence, who was a deist, who took his Bible, and you can read about the Jefferson Bible, in which he went through and omitted, crossed out, cut out of his Bible, any miracles of Jesus, because that wasn't logical or make sense. He would hang on to the parables of Jesus, but a miracle of Jesus didn't make sense. That couldn't have happened. He got rid of it. And in fact, Jesus' life in his gospel, in his Bible, ends with Jesus' death and burial. There is no resurrection. 
And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me tell you something, you are not a Christian. We have to have some untangible things, and the resurrection of Jesus is one of those things. And so as a Christian nation, no, we're not a Christian nation. We are a nation that was set up in order for people to exercise a freedom of religion, that you could exercise a freedom to worship what God you wanted, where you wanted, how you wanted, as long as it did not go against this one idea that mankind, that humans, were all created equal. As long as whatever your worship is of whatever God you want to have and whatever source you want, as long as that does not go against another person and their human right, then yeah, feel free to worship. So Christianity was able to flourish underneath this system. But to think that a democracy was God's idea, that's not true. When you defend the Constitution more than you defend the Bible, there's a problem. When you know the Bill of Rights better than you know Jesus' best teaching of the Beatitudes, we have a problem. If you think that the Founding Fathers were closer to God than the disciples were, we have a problem. We should be more about representing the cross of Christ than the flag of the nation we represent. Now, am I saying that we should not be patriotic? No, you can be patriotic, but do not allow your identity and your allegiance to be for anything other than Jesus. Is God pro-choice or pro-life? I would suggest he's neither. Both of those are political positions anymore. As soon as you say you're one of those two, guess what? You went left, you went right, and now I put a bunch of stereotypes with you. You know what I think God is? I think God is pro-humanity. Man, he is so for humans. He is so for humans. And I do think it's interesting, just to throw some extra stuff out there, that God really appears to be uh, pro-choice in the Bible. Isn't it interesting in the Garden of Eden, he didn't cut down the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? People still had a choice and an opportunity to do wrong. He desperately wanted them to choose right. But he didn't remove the choice. Things to think about. Uvalde, school shooting. Oh, Pastor Alex, are you going there? May 24th, 19 children and two adults were killed in the shooting at Robb Elementary School. Um, in case you don't know, that's a tragedy. We've heard about so many school shootings. We've heard about so many things that we, we've become desensitized and numb to it. That's horrible. And if your first response is, well, don't you be coming to take my guns away, your heart is not in the right place. When there's a loss of life, that should break your heart if your heart is like that of God who's pro-humanity. When we begin just to defend what we consider a right in the midst of a tragedy, we are being probably too political. Here's a big thought for you, and we're going to try to move on. Everyone is living out a narrative. Uh, I used to say this, that uh, everybody has a story. The person next to you has a story. Um, chances are you don't know their full story, but they have a story. Um, but God knows everyone's story. We each tell ourselves a version of our own story. This is the narrative of our life. And inside of our narrative, however we tell our story, is where we find our identity. 
So, for instance, let's say that you um, had a horrific childhood, you were abused, um, you grew up in a poor family system, um, there were lots of things that are horrible that had taken place, and now you're an adult. There's a narrative that we tell. If you found yourself being successful and you've overcome that and you have uh, a family now and your own children and you're saying, no, there's going to be a difference in how I was raised and how this is now and I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to continue those family sins into the next generation. There's going to be a change in me. Then that narrative causes you to find an identity that I'm an overcomer, that I am bigger than anything the world can throw at me, that nothing in my past is going to identify me for my future. No, I can be an overcomer. So there's a part of the narrative that helps us to find our identity. Does that make sense? And then we can have the same story. We had a horrible upbringing, abuse, poverty, didn't have two nickels to rub together, and now, man, I just can't find a job. I just, I struggle. I just can never be anything uh, because, man, I, I was set up so poorly as a kid and I just didn't have the opportunities that other people had. And it's just, it's just frustrating. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm broken and I just can't seem to do it. Okay. It can be the same events, but the narrative in which you talk about is different, right? And all of a sudden, the identity that you take on is more of a victim than an overcomer. You take on this victim that it's just poor me, then no, I can't do anything. And so inside of the narrative, however you tell your story is where you tend to find your identity. Does that make sense? So we're all telling narratives of ourselves. And out of those narratives, we're pulling identities. And so we have to be careful about the narratives that we're telling, that they're not mixed with lies, that they're actually telling the truth, and that the identity that we are pulling from it is one that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if we are ever going to figure out what our true identity is, and if we're ever going to find our true allegiance and where those things should be at, we have to approach this as people who believe in God, not as atheists. And so if you're going to ask yourself, who am I? And you want to answer that question as an atheist, here's what you do. See, an atheist doesn't believe that there's a higher power. There's no supernatural. There's nothing beyond me. I'm the highest evolved being in the evolutionary chain. I'm the highest thinking thing. In fact, I'm smarter than my parents because I'm further evolved than them. I'm the next generation. I'm, you know, the iPhone 15. I'm new. Like, I'm better. He's old. iPhone 8. I don't even know what generation he's from. And so I've got to be better. This is atheist, right? So your children, they're further evolved than you. They're smarter than you. And so I am... Um, the highest being. And so if I need to find out who I am, I don't need to ask anyone else. Um, there's no such thing as God. So all I need to do to find out who I am is I need to look within me. I can find who I am by looking in me. And so maybe I can get a self-help book to help me look into me. Maybe I can go see a psychiatrist who can help me to think about me. And I can figure out me. And then I can kind of tell myself a narrative about me that makes me feel good. And then I can pull an identity out of that. Okay, that's the atheistic approach to finding out your identity. Theistic approach, there is a God, there's a higher power. Guess what? If there is a creator, then that means he created you. And if there's a God who created you, it would beg, I would beg to say that he created you with purpose. He's just not creating junk. He's just not making things for no reasons. If God if there is a God and he did create, then he created you and he created you with a purpose. He created you for a certain reason, that there's a reason that you exist. Okay, if there is a reason that I exist and I want to find out who I am 
and I don't know why I exist, I can't find that answer within me. I have to go back to my creator to find out the reason why I exist. I think too many Christians want to know who am I, but they're approaching it, an atheistic approach. They're just looking within. They're just trying to find out who they are. And we have to go back to the creator to truly know our true identity. And this is the crazy cool thing about Saul. You guys remember Saul? I had Billy. Billy came and read about Saul. He did such a great job. Saul. Saul, murderer of Christians. Trying to put down anybody who followed Jesus. All of a sudden had an encounter with Jesus. He was on the bad guy side. He became a good guy. And then he began to preach the good guy message. But then people were like, I don't know if we can trust him. He just tried to kill my friend. He was holding the coach when it happened. He was just trying to do it. I don't know if I can trust him. He's a little bit like Bucky. I don't know. I don't know if he's worthy of my trust. I just, you know, I'm, I'm nervous around him. And I hear that he's preaching it, but is he just trying to get a crowd so he can kill more of us? What's he trying to do? And while I think it would have been so natural for Saul to have been at odds with all the same things Bucky was, with his perspective of how people saw him, with his perspective of himself, of his perspective of the world, I think that would have been so normal for Saul. But when we read the story of Saul, that is not what we see at all. We see Saul, who his identity and his allegiance, man, they were solid. There was no question mark. There was no doubt. There was no deviation. There was no, I don't know where I'm at. No, no. He knew who he was, and he knew whose side he was on. And so if you were to ask Saul, like, who are you? Whose side are you on? He'd be like, bro, I encountered Jesus. Like, no, I encountered Jesus. Or maybe, uh, like, yeah, Jesus encountered me in a way, like, that changed me. I know who I am, and I've come to this place that I have to tell people about Jesus. It's not a maybe. It's not, oh, there may be persecution. No, no, I know all about it. Listen, I know who I am, and I know whose side I'm on. And so if we look at Bucky versus Saul, man, Bucky was struggling to find out his identity. He was struggling to know his allegiance, but man, Saul was unswerving. He knew who he was, and he was not moving off of that. Where Bucky was unsure of himself and what was going to happen, man, Saul had confidence so much so that he was going to stand up in front of other people and proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and how we can follow him. Bucky was uncertain of himself, of how others were going to receive him. But man, Saul walked with a certainty when the believers weren't sure if he was trustworthy or not. Did he try to convince them? He never defended himself. He just let others defend him. He just said, I know who I am. I know whose side I'm on. I don't have to fight for that. I know who I am. And I know who I belong to. And I know whose side I'm on. See, Saul could not have changed on his own. He could not have found his identity by looking within. He could not have found his allegiance that way. He needed the power of God in him to make a change. I want you to get that. Saul couldn't have changed on his own. He needed the power of God in him to change. And I believe that it's God's intention that every one of us experience a change of heart towards him. And when we experience a change of heart towards God, that is when our identity can be changed. So this morning as we wrap up this message, we touched a lot of subjects 
we exhausted none. But I think the most important thing for each and every one of us is to figure out who we are and whose side are we on. We can have lots of choices that we put. If we say, hey, you have Jesus on this hand or you have whatever you want to put on this side, we have to be at a place that Jesus always wins. Always. I'm going to be shaped by who he is. I'm going to try to live my life the way that he would desire, not in any other way, not in any other political way, not in any other humanitarian way, not in any other strength of my own way. No, I'm going to do it his way. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to turn my back on all other ways. I'm going to be all in for him. And see, until we can make that switch and flex our faith, which is an exercise of trust, and put it fully in Jesus, we will always be double-minded and unstable in all our ways. We will always be trying to hold allegiance to two things. And you cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve two gods. So today, who will you serve? My hope for you as you leave today is that you say, you know what, I want to serve Jesus Christ. There may be places in your life indeed in which you are not. But if you say, I want this, God will help lead you to that and God will fix these other things that are out of alignment. He will bring alignment. He will bring change. Are you going to have to participate in that? You betcha. But today, can you say, I want Jesus. I want to be I want to be a follower of Jesus more than I want to be an American. I want to be a follower of Jesus more than I want to be a husband. I want to be a follower of Jesus more than I want to be anything. There's nothing that's going to trump that. I want to be a follower of Jesus. If you've not made that confession of faith, or if you've forgotten that that is our confession of faith, would you make that today? Let's bow our heads. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you, God, that while we don't know who we are and our allegiance is sometimes all over the map, that you are patient with us, that you are kind to us, that your Holy Spirit is continually drawing us to you. And God, I pray that the words of this message might change hearts, not because they're my words, but God, because you desire to change hearts. You are pro-humanity. You are pro-every person in this room. And God, you know them. You know their story. You know the narrative they've been talking to themselves. You know how they're trying to see themselves. And God, I know sometimes you're you're probably just shaking your head in heaven thinking, man, I've got a better way. Lord, I pray that today our heart would be changed, that we might say, God, I want your better way. I choose you. I don't even know everything that that means, but God, change my heart and move my affections, move my desires to where they reflect you. Lord, help me to respond that way. And so God, as I lead this prayer on behalf of every person here, God, I choose you today. I want you to be first in my life. I want everything else to be second. Lord, if my heart has grown fond, has begun to build allegiance to other things, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for that act of treason against you and that, Lord, you would help restore my heart of love to you again. God, I pray that this would not just be about me, but, Lord, you would do such a work in me that I would be like Saul and I would begin to go and tell everybody I know about how great you are. I thank you for loving me. I thank you for changing me. I thank you for the freedom that you give that comes only through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.